Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. In this episode, I speak with 2021 graduate Sarah Rahajason about Latin philology and the study of the thoughts and beliefs of ancient civilizations through their written language. We're focusing on Latin and Rome, even though philology applies to ancient Greek as well, because Sarah's research is on Lucretius, who is a Roman poet, and he made this massive epic poem called De Rerum Natura, and it aims to explain how everything in the physical world works through Epicureanism, which is an earlier ancient Greek philosophy centered on materialism and atomism. Basically, what that means is Epicurus thought that everything in the world was made up of tiny, indivisible particles and empty space. Lucretius, writing about three centuries later, picks up these ideas and constructs a huge poem in Latin, narrating the key tenets of Epicureanism, which also includes ideas about how pleasure is the highest good, and the aim in life is to achieve as much pleasure as possible and avoid as much pain as possible. So Sarah will talk us through all of that. There's not too much discussion on philosophy because she's looking mainly at the vocabulary of sweetness, but we will be laying the groundwork for Epicureanism and Lucretius's version of Epicureanism. So to summarize very briefly, Sarah looks at two Latin words, dulcis and suavis, and they both mean in Lucretius, sweet. But of course, that's an English translation, and there is a lot of connotations that belong purely to the Latin language and purely to suavis and dulcis in those forms that are not translatable into English. And so one needs to go back into Latin literature and try to trace through other passages, through other authors, earlier and later works to try to figure out what suavis and dulcis meant for a Roman audience. And that's exactly what Sarah did. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and hopefully we can all walk away with a huge appreciation for Latin literature and for the Romans who operated with a relatively small vocabulary, but were able to express complex ideas. But for now, let's turn to De Rerum Natura, Sweetness, and Sarah Rahajason. Welcome to the podcast. This is really exciting for me because you're the first philologist to come on the podcast and philology is an area that I completely fell in love with. This is a really great opportunity for, I hope, many students to discover philology. Before we jump into all of that, could you please just introduce yourself and give us some fun facts or hobbies about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I'm Sarah Rahajason. I was born and raised in Montreal. So I'm from Canada, but right now I'm living in Dublin. Some of my hobbies, I'm really into baking right now, actually. And uh, yeah. So tell us, how did you end up at McGill and in the classics program? I like the look of this, the campus. It was kind of nice. And being from Montreal, like both my parents went to McGill as well. And they loved to show me around the campus when I was a little kid. So I kind of already was into that. And then classics itself was a bit of a whim. So yeah, being from Quebec, I went to CGEP between high school and my undergrad. And during that time, I did the liberal arts program at Vanier College. Shout out to Vanier College. The program was kind of like 
following a like a timeline through history starting in the first term with like ancient everything basically literature philosophy history etc so all of the different classes were a sort of a different area of the ancient world and my interest was immediately piqued by one class i took called the legacy of athens and jerusalem it was taught by dr timothy budd and my little 17 year old brain couldn't handle it we covered mesopotamian creation texts biblical texts we covered some Greek tragedies, most notably Oedipus Rex, which was really just a, an eye-opening experience. I'd never read ancient literature in earnest before that term. So I was really amazed at how Dr. Budd, as a philologist himself, which was also a concept new to me at the time, he unpacked all of these materials. And it was something I had never experienced before, and I ended up finishing the term feeling unsatisfied, wanting more. So I thought, why not satisfy that curiosity in my undergrad? And so as soon as I got accepted to McGill, the next step seemed to me to be pretty clear. Where are you now and what are you studying? So right now I'm doing my MPhil at Trinity College Dublin, which is why I'm, I'm in Dublin right now. I'm still studying classics. The program at Trinity is set up pretty nicely so that you can kind of get a taste of everything that classics has to offer, but it also allows for enough choice to spend a significant amount of time on at what actually interests you. So right now, for me, that's Latin philology. So yeah, that's what I've been studying. All right, so let's just jump right in. Talk to us about philology, define it for us, maybe give us a bit of your reasoning behind why you want to study Latin philology and its place in the larger study or the larger field of classics. So like, I think a lot could be said about philology as a discipline or a subdiscipline, however you like to look at it. It could really easily be confused with linguistics, but I think that they're pretty distinctly different. Linguistics takes on like more of a scientific approach to language, all the aspects of language. While on the other hand, philology is more of an historical approach to the study of language. It takes history and linguistic data for the purpose of textual and literary criticism. A philologist would be interested in everything to do with the written record, so like how authentic it is, uh, what it would have looked like in its original form, what factors could have contributed to the work developing all of the variants that it would have developed. And based on all of those questions, what, what does that text mean? What are the implications of all of these other things on the meaning of the text? And it's not a new practice either. It really dates back to back in the day, scholars at the Library of Alexandria even were engaging in this kind of study. So yeah, that's actually kind of how I would, I would define philology. So given that classics is mostly based off of, like if we're talking about Latin, like a dead language and mostly a textual tradition, what is the approach that you would take to study changes in language? So that's like a real, that's a really good question, actually. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. I think the approach and like methodology would sort of depend on to what end the philologist is working on a particular set of texts. A philologist might use variants of the same text to like reconstruct the original or like a more cognitive philologist might examine like sort of the mental processes that would come with like a deciphering a, some kind of oration or something. Uh, philologists might work on deciphering writing systems that are previously unknown based on other writing systems. Like I think the possibilities are pretty much endless. I've only just taken my first little baby steps into philology. So for my interest, I've been looking at like sort of diachronic uses of particular terms. So my method looks just like a little bit like this. Okay, so I will first jump into the best database that has ever existed, the Library of Latin Texts, our favorite, <laughs> shout out. 
And I do a kind of a word search for all similar forms of whatever given word that I'm trying to look at. And then depending on the term, there could be like thousands of results or there could be just like a handful depending on the term. And the next step is to look at usually the very first uses of the term and then sort of sift through the results, paying attention to like maybe patterns that might come up and like maybe other words commonly found in association with those words, like things like that. What's important, I think, is to allow the discoveries to kind of jump out at you rather than impose your own ideas onto the words and onto those uses. And then once you've looked through all of that data and established kind of first preliminary thoughts, then the results can be looked at with a more critical eye, taking into account different things, the context of the author, intent of the work, genre, multiple other factors. And as, as you probably remember, Cindy, this method was, not, was definitely imposed upon me <laughs> by Professor Gladhill in one of our many advanced Latin courses that I took with him through my undergrad. At first, I, really didn't, I didn't really enjoy this kind of research. I really came to like it through like practice. Latin literature can feel kind of impenetrable sometimes. I don't know if you feel this way, but it feels sometimes like the text is like a, containing a lot of like really well-kept secrets. But then when you kind of unpack even just one word, which is a whole world in and of itself, and you like laser focus on some particular things, it can feel like a tiny little peek behind the curtain. For sure. And I think it's important to clarify that for the Brepolis database, what it essentially is, is it spits out every single usage of this Latin word or phrase, whatever you enter into the search bar that has ever been found in extant Latin literature. So you're literally swimming through sometimes text dating back to the second or third century BCE, trying to compile these fragments, trying to find out this word's meaning and synthesize some kind of coherent argument. I think you and I share a common source for the discovery of philology because I too <laughs> discovered it through Professor Bill Gladhill and it has become like the most fascinating area of classical research for me because like you said there's so much packed inside every single word especially for latin poetry when word choice is so important and i think we'll talk more about this because lucretius whom you focus most of your research on is a latin poet and i think it's just there's so much to find there and it really speaks to the depth of latin and how much we can uncover again about the ancient view of life and ancient stories so I'm wondering, mostly for my own selfish reason, for your MPhil program in Latin philology, is there a specific course that you take that's focused on philology, or is this sort of an interdisciplinary approach where you take a bunch of different courses about like culture and history and then try to synthesize that into your own research about words? So the MPhil structure at Trinity is you have one year-long course. In that course, every two weeks, it's a different lecture. By the end of the year, we'll have explored eight or nine different areas. So yeah, that really allows us to get a feeling for all of the different areas of classics. And then aside from that one, we have a certain number of other classes to take per semester. And those can include language, those can include literature, they can include pretty much any. You can choose from like a pretty wide variety of, of options. In this past term, I took a course taught by Professor Monica Gale, who was one of the reasons why I decided to go to Trinity. I got to take her class this term, and it was called Desire in the Body, from Catullus to Seneca. So we covered Catullus, Propertius, Lucretius, Ovid, and Seneca over the course of the term, uh, looking at their different conceptions of desire and the body, basically. 
That's a hefty list. It was. It was a lot of material to cover, but there were some things that I had just not been exposed to before or had read very little of. So it really did force me to delve into some authors that I previously not uh, had much experience with. Yeah, well, let's turn to an author that you have had some experience with, as I know, in your undergrad, Lucretius. Tell us about who he is, maybe some of his background, and then we can delve more into uh, the topics of your research. Okay, so I love the question, who is Lucretius? Because just, just nobody knows. Nobody knows. And I love the mystery around him. For people who haven't heard of him, he was a Roman philosopher and poet, lived in the first century BCE, and he wrote the very long but absolutely incredible didactic poem, De Rerum Natura, often translated to On the Nature of Things. There kind of aren't any reliable sources to indicate anything about like his life, where he was born, when he was born, when he died, or just about anything, really. 400 years after he died, St. Jerome wrote some pretty salacious rumors about his life, but nothing that can actually be verified. Like He says... Lucretius took a love potion, and then he went crazy, and then between like his sort of bouts of insanity, wrote the De Rerum Natura, which he handed off to Cicero to edit and then publish, and then he committed suicide at age 44. That's like a crazy story. I don't like to believe any of that is true, but I do love the rumors. The audacity that he had given Cicero his treaties before death. Right? Who, where did he come up with that? I don't even know. What we do know, though, and it's based only on his one extant work, De Rerum Natura, is that he was an Epicurean. So the poem is six books long, and it explains the origins and movements and of like everything. And he introduces the idea of atomism. And yeah, that's kind of the central idea of the poem. And then all of his scientific explanations in the poem serve a very Epicurean goal, that is to convince the reader to not fear death. Right, so very basically, the idea that Epicurus came up with is that everything in the world is made up of tiny particles, atoms, and empty space, which is void. And interactions between these atoms and empty space can account for all of the phenomena we see in the natural world. So because Epicurus believed that everything was made up of atoms and everything was material, the body itself is completely material, and when one dies, your atoms will dissipate and you will become nothing. No soul exists, no afterlife exists, so there's nothing to worry about because there's no hell or some kind of torment after death. There is only nothingness. So take that as you will, see if it's comforting. That was Epicurus's view on death, at least. I remember coming in contact with Epicureanism through Lucretius's De Rerum Natura and being just astounded by the similarities between Epicurus' thoughts and our modern ideas about the physical world and, you know, atoms existing. Epicurus didn't get everything right, but I think the essential idea, or at least some strands of it, about the material world are consistent with our modern understanding of the physical world. I just want to mention here that Epicurus himself was writing in the 4th century BCE. He was a Greek philosopher. And this is significant because Lucretius was a Roman living in the 50s BCE, so almost a three-century gap between the living philosopher and what we know of his writings. So even though this episode isn't about philosophy, it's more about philology and Lucretius's De Rerum Natura, could you very briefly outline what Lucretius can tell us about Epicureanism and what is Lucretius's version of Epicureanism? 
Okay, so that's a really complicated question. So yeah, like you said, Epicurus was a Greek philosopher. Epicureanism, highly influential school of philosophy. You can probably find echoes of, of Epicurean philosophy pretty much anywhere you look. Uh, in ancient writing, most of his writings don't survive to us. We do have a couple of things. He has letters here and there, basically, and that's where we get little bits of his philosophy. But yeah, like you said, most of it comes from Lucretius. Basically, Epicurus outlines like sort of the crux of his philosophy in his letter to Minoikius. Epicureanism as a hedonist philosophy has kind of at the center the idea that ataraxia is the highest possible good in life, the goal to which everybody should aspire. Ataraxia for Epicurus being, like in very, very simplistic terms, the absence of pain, both from the body and the mind. So the kind of pain that humans can experience that takes them away from ataraxia or that prevents them from achieving it is usually like the result of some kind of irrational fear, something like death and fears that come from superstition, which Lucretius calls religio and he discusses at length. So those are the kinds of things that would prevent one from ridding oneself of bodily and psychological or mental pain and achieve or ascend to a state of ataraxia. So like in the pursuit of pleasure, which is one and the same as the avoidance of pain, one can become closer to whatever the Epicurean ideal is. So we shouldn't mistake the pursuit of ataraxia as an uncontrolled pursuit of excessive pleasures, which is kind of the thing associated with hedonism as a philosophy. Epicurus is very explicit when he explains that a life of sober moderation is really the key. Uh, and Lucretius takes all of this up again and expands on it in the De Rerum Natura. So one theme that you highlight in book four of Lucretius's De Rerum Natura is the idea of sweetness and its relationship to pleasure, and two words in particular, which are suavis and dulcis. Can you define these two words for us, maybe give us their etymologies, and then perhaps tell us your reason behind why you decided to focus on sweetness, how these words jumped out at you? So it started a long time ago, actually. It started in early, or late, rather late 2019, was when those words actually first jumped out at me, and then it took me a couple of years to get back around to them. So in the Darum Natura, the very well-known opening 13 lines of book two, in Lucretius's poem, it starts with a primal, a primal being a list of alternative premises and then concluded by like a climax, which sets up the theme for the rest of the book. So in the opening lines of book two, the primal goes, I'm just going to give a very crude translation that I have here. It is sweet, suave, to watch the great labor of another man from the land when the waters on the great sea are disturbed by the winds, not because it is desirable joy to be troubled by the labor of anyone, but because it is sweet, suave again, to perceive from what danger you are missing. It is also sweet, suave, to behold great contests of warfare scattered over the fields, with you not playing any part of those dangers, but nothing is sweeter, dulcius, than to occupy the lofty, serene sanctuaries, well fortified by the teachings of wise men, from where you may look down upon others and see them all wandering astray, seeking the path of life. So those are the opening lines of book two. And this primal, so starting with Suave and then Suave again, and then the climax ending with Dulcius, really piqued my interest when I was reading Lucretius in my first ever advanced Latin class, taught by Professor Sirwa back in 2019. 
So often suaves and dulces are, are translated as something being pleasant. That's kind of the translation most were offering at the time when we were first reading that. But I wasn't super satisfied with that translation, even at the time. Like seeing those words in the primal of book two and then seeing them in comparison again with the re very recurring simile of the honey-rimmed cup, which we'll probably get into later. I was really curious about sort of the gustatory connotations of sweetness and how they might have intersected with the philosophical implications of what is pleasant. So I didn't really feel like I had the skills to articulate it at the time, so I wrote about something else then, but it's always been kind of brewing at the back of my mind. Having looked into it now, so the etymology of Suawes and Dulcus are actually quite interesting. So Don Fowler, in his famous commentary on Lucretius Book 2, he categorizes Suawes as being very much akin to the Greek hedus, hedomai, which in Greek literature usually refers to things that uh, bring pleasures to the senses, and then by extension they bring pleasures to the mind. And dulcis, on the other hand, is thought to have come from the Greek glucus, generally referring to things that are in themselves more literally sweet, and thereby pleasurable to the mind and the senses. That gets taken up again in Latin literature. Suawes takes on kind of a more informal tone, and it's often found in like sort of lower genres, like epistolary, like in comedy. And it doesn't really appear in poetry very much after Virgil, or at all, I don't think. Uh, and then Dulcus, on the other hand, kind of appears in all like genres and all different, all the different stylistic registers. So yeah, those are kind of the origins of the words. Yeah, that's what's up. So given that the differences between Suawis and Dulcus in meaning are actually quite similar, how can we tell that in Lucretius, as in other uses in Latin literature, that there is an intentional use of each word? How do you know they're not just like mere synonyms for each other? That's a good question. I think even just looking at those uses in the opening lines of book two, it is sweet to watch this war, it is sweet to look at this shipwreck, but then it is sweetest to practice Epicurean philosophy, basically. I think that had they been exactly synonyms in the mind of the Latin poet, there wouldn't be such a clear distinction between these two things, these two premises in the primal are suave, but this particular other thing is dulcius. So I think in a practical sense, sure, they can be understood as synonyms, but I think there's far more nuance to it. And I think I've, I've even only just begun to scratch the surface. Can you give us a quick rundown of your conclusions on the paper on how you find Lucretius views the difference between Suawis and Dulcis? So the uses of Suawis and Dulcis are only like really, really subtly different. Suawis can usually pertain to, like, well, like I said before, what is more mentally pleasurable and Dulcis more physical, more literal sweetness. But the distinction between the two, I don't think it's such a clear-cut distinction that we're able to systematize it in any way. So I was looking at its uses in Plautine comedy, so for its uses in Roman comedic theater, all the way through Lucretius's uses in, in Book 4, the uses of Suawis and Dulcis, they point to kind of a wider understanding of sweetness as a type of deception, actually, in Republican literature. So beneath the uses of the adjectives denoting sweetness, there's an obvious gustatory connotation, with the words being associated with honey, very often being found with some form of mel next to it, mel meaning honey. But beyond that, what sweetness reveals in Lucretius IV is two different types of deception. One is a kind of meta-literary deception, which is clear when comparing uses in Cicero, and another type of deception, which is on sort of the metaphorical level, which is more clear when comparing it to Plautus's comedies. 
So you mentioned Plautus and Cicero. So these are two Roman Republican authors who are writing prior to Lucretius, or in the case of Cicero, somewhat contemporaneously with him. And they write in different genres. So I think that also has implications for how Suawis and Dalcus are used. Could you briefly introduce who these two characters are, and then maybe how their genre affects their use of Suawis and Dalcus? Sure. So Plautus, he was a Roman comic playwright. He lived in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE. So he was around quite a bit before Lucretius. Only 20 of his 130 plays survived to us intact. Another 30 or 31 of them, something like that, exists, but only in fragments. So he was really quite the prolific guy. His comedies are inspired by and often ripped right from Greek New Comedy, especially plays by Menander, which focus mainly on like the family unit and contain really very little political commentary, current events, references, that kind of stuff. So he was able to sort of rip those plays from Menander and then easily adapt them for Roman tastes. The plot's quite formulaic, usually comedy of errors, misunderstanding, wordplay, slapstick, that kind of stuff, and recurring stock characters. Those are all kind of features of Plautian comedy. And Cicero, on the other hand, really a more serious kind of guy. He's a Roman statesman, lawyer, orator, whatever you'd like to categorize him as. And roughly contemporaneous with Lucretius, his era was just a little bit later, but I think there's quite a bit of overlap. So he lived in the first century BC, and he was quite prolific as well as an orator and as a philosopher. He wrote about rhetoric, he wrote about politics, he wrote about all kinds of things. And we also have some of his correspondence, which is definitely an interesting read. Some, I think some would say he had a little bit too much to say. <laughs> so Plautus uses the adjectives 49 times throughout his corpus, 28 uses of Suawis, 21 uses of Dulcus. And they can be kind of broadly separated into four categories. So he has them as terms of endearment for a loved one used in direct address, referring to something of a gustatory nature, referring to someone or something beloved, so an ambition, a civic institution, a lover, etc., and referring to traits and desirability in women. So although these, these categories are not necessarily like mutually exclusive, they all show kind of a subversion of Roman expectations within a normative and recognizable framework that I think contributes to the comedic nature of his plays. There's always the stern paterfamilias, a love-struck young man pining over some kind of inappropriate mistress. Either she's married, she's a prostitute, she's promised to another, she's owned by another, etc. A cunning slave getting caught in a series of fortunate misunderstandings. And usually at the end, it all leads to some kind of neat resolution where expected order has been restored. So that's kind of how it appears in Plautus. Cicero, very similarly to in Plautus, actually, the uses of Suavis and Dulcis are appearing in like several broad, non-mutually exclusive categories. So the same thing, terms of endearment, usually in his letters. Another category to qualify sensory experience, so taste, sight, smell, or hearing, and he uses them as an evaluation of certain orations, or oration itself as a skill and as a genre. So Suawis for Cicero is more strongly associated with intellectual matters and can be the source of some kind of mental agreeableness, while Dulcus has uh, more to do with the emotional, things that are beloved, things that are cherished and dear. Yeah, both Suawis and Dulcus are used to describe things that provoke sensory experience, as well as the actual sensory experiences provoked themselves. But Suawis is used exclusively for the sense of sight and smell. And Lucretius, like we'll probably talk about in a bit, echoes both of these authors in his uses of Suawis and Dulcus. So let's bring this all back to Lucretius. Tell me about the difference between these two concepts that you bring up in your paper, which are catastomatic 
and kinetic pleasure. What is the difference between these two terms? And if you could provide us with some examples, that would be fabulous. Okay, so the theme of the course for which I wrote this paper about Lucretius, this term was about desire and the body, like we talked about a bit before. So my understanding of Epicurean pleasures is kind of centered around that. So the state of painlessness and undisturbedness of the body and the mind, Epicurus names ataraxia, but he also uses the term catasomatic pleasure, so catasomatikai hedonai, to define this particular state. So this is a state that everyone should always be striving for because that kind of pleasure, catasomatic pleasure, is the highest good. And the highest pleasure is the absence of pain in the body and the absence of disturbance in the mind. So Epicurus's pleasure, as Purinton actually argues in his article Epicurus on the Telos, is the, quote, intentional object of joy, end quote, and it comes about as a result of what he calls kinetic pleasure, so hedonai kata kinesin. So kinetic pleasure is one of the things that can bring on catastomatic pleasure, which is the thing that we ought to be striving for anyway. So that kind of, at least for me and for the purpose of my paper, sort of establishes the link between pleasure as a philosophical principle and pleasure as a bodily experience. So kinetic pleasures consist of, as some examples, pleasures from sex, from nice melodies, you know, sound, taste, so sweet tasting food, like something that is defined as honey sweet, and motions, so those are the kinesis, motions such as like the movements of somebody's body, which might inspire some kind of desire. So each of these pleasures are things on which the mind can get joy. Like these Epicurean sort of pleasures being kinetic in nature are inherently of the body. So experiencing every one of these types of pleasures is necessary for achieving catastomatic pleasure. So by extension, catastomatic pleasure is contingent on bodily pleasure, if that makes any sense. Yeah, just to expand this into a, a metaphor, would it be like listening to sweet music is a kinetic pleasure because my body is experiencing it? And then as my body experiences it, my mind reaches catastomatic pleasure, which is an intangible spiritual sort of peacefulness yeah i think i think that that's quite right i think listening to like experiencing that bodily pleasure from listening to a sweet song or from eating something good or from any of those other examples serves to get rid uh, or to inspire some kind of joy that is the object of catastomatic pleasure that is the thing that catastomatic pleasure will achieve so bringing upon that kind of pleasure is to also get rid of bodily pain. So I think it's like sort of a dual action. And as a result, you can achieve the kind of undisturbedness of the mind, if that makes any sense. I think your metaphor is, is quite right. So because we had talked a bit earlier about how Swawis and Dulcus differ just slightly in that one is about bodily pleasure and one is about like spiritual pleasure, do you find that their applications vary? Like is Dulcus used more often with kinetic pleasure or Swawis with kinetic pleasure versus their uses with catastomatic pleasure? I don't think that catastomatic pleasure is really referred to in such explicit words. I think Swawis and Dulcus are always on the level of kinetic pleasure, and these are things that refer to, in a more indirect sense, to something that can drive you towards catastomatic pleasure. So I'm really interested in this connection that you found between sweetness and deception. Can you elaborate more on this and then maybe even bring us back to like precedent set by Plautus and Cicero in their uses and connection between like deception and sweet pleasure? 
Yeah, so sort of at the center of my argument in my paper is that there is some kind of deception underlying the uses of terms denoting sweetness and Lucretius. And I think it is an echo of Plautus and then is further reflected in Cicero. So the Plautine echoes of deceptive sweetness are more on the metaphorical level, while the parallels with Cicero are more on the level of the metaliterary. So I suppose for Plautus, it would be honestly some kind of precedence. So one interesting example of something that comes up in Plautus and then is then echoed again in Lucretius is the trope of the locked out lover. So in the end of Lucretius book four, Lucretius says, but often the weeping lover, having been shut out, covers the threshold with flowers and with garlands and smears the haughty doorposts with perfume of marjoram and miserable, he presses his kisses on the doors. But if one whiff offends as he comes in, having been let inside, he would seek a worthy reason for leaving, and the complaint so often rehearsed would fall deeply, and there he would condemn himself for his stupidity, as he sees that he attributed to her more than is fair to concede to a mortal. So this passage appears to be the elaboration of a basic plot structure in Roman comedy. So there's the young, locked-out lover. He's unable to see the true nature of his mistress because there's both a literal and metaphorical barrier. The door is in between himself and the object of his affection. First, these barriers keep him unaware of the parts of the loved that he might not consider so sweet, like her grooming habits and her bodily functions, and whatever smells and sounds accompany those. Locked door serves as a barrier between the lover and his mistress, and, the, and it alludes to sort of the deceptive nature and behaviors of women, and by extension, the deceptive nature of love and desire. So love comes, at least in part, from women's ability to manipulate reality with first closed doors to mask the process of making themselves beautiful, and then with makeup and perfume to cover their natural body uh, the way it looks and smells. As such, the object of love is an illusion, as is the resulting love itself. This comes in a, at the end of Lucretius Book 4, and this seems to me to be a direct echo of something I found in one of Plautus's plays, The Stychus. So the main character, Stychus's girlfriend, Stephanium, she says this very close to the way that Lucretius says it in the fifth act of the play. She says, I will be indulged, my delights. For thus, as lovely Venus may love me, a long time ago I would have come out here with you if I was not adorning myself for you. Thus indeed, it is the natural character for women. She is well washed, neat, decorated, and made up. So in that passage, Stephanium, she reveals that the true value and desirability of women is actually staged. Then Plautus inserts sweetness with the word suavitate in this context to sort of reinforce that metaphorical deception underlying that which is suavis. Beneath sweetness of a woman's made-up appearance is something undesirable. And in the same way, likewise, hidden beneath the sweetness of love is sort of like the painful trap of desire, as is outlined in Lucretius. So I thought that those similarities or that echo was pretty interesting when I first read it sort of closed the gap, which seemingly was impossible to close before between Roman comedy and what Lucretius's mission was in writing his, in writing his poem. And then for Cicero, like in Lucretius, the adjectives denoting sweetness reveal sort of meta-literary deception through indirect references to sensory experience. The meta-literary deception underpinning the use of suavis as descriptors for sensory experience is really clear in Cicero. 
his goal in his dialogue, so the dialogue in De Oratore, is to describe the skills and attributes of the ideal orator. And Swawis is used as one of those attributes. So his De Oratore in itself already is a meta-literary text as a philosophical dialogue about orators written by an orator about the quality and style and skill expected from the supposed ideal orator. So in book three of the De Oratore, twice variations of Swawis are used concerning orators in terms of their pitch and their volume. So you'll allow me another small quote by Cicero. So he says, in every voice, there is a certain middle pitch, but there is a different one to each voice. Hence, also, it is sweet. The voice gradually ascends, for it is an unrefined thing to clamor from the beginning. This variation and this course of the voice through all sounds will both protect itself and bring sweetness to its behavior. Though Suawis, in the De Oratore, takes on a, a meta-literary self-referential meaning first by simply appearing in a meta-literary text and a philosophical treatise on rhetoric, and it refers to you know, the agreeableness of speech and is connecting oratory to the sensory experience of hearing. So by associating the experience of hearing with sweetness, which is inherently tied to a different sensory experience that is tasting, Cicero is engaging with what is called synesthetic attribution of sweetness to the auditory experience of oratory. So yeah, Cicero, he uses Suawis in particular in literary criticism to introduce a meta-literary deception, which is also demonstrated in Lucretius's Honey-Rimmed Cup, right at the beginning of book four, lines 11 to 25, which is a very recurring simile. While in Lucretius, there's a meta-literary and self-referential deception underpinning gustatory sweetness, for Cicero, it would appear to be uh, the inverse. There is rather a gustatory element of sweetness underpinning metapoetic sweetness. I, I really like that. Can we just break down that last section about Lucretius's use of deception and sweetness, especially because in that passage you quoted in the opening of book two, Lucretius uses Suawis and Dulcus like three or four times. So I'm wondering, like in applications of Suawis and Dulcus in book four, and especially around this metaphor of the honey-rimmed cup, is Lucretius talking about his own poetry and his own work as uh, deceptive in some way and sort of alluding to how Plautus had used this word? Yeah, I would say I would say he is referring to the deceptive nature of his own poem, not in content, but rather poetry itself as a form. So we, we already know kind of how Epicurus felt about the use of poetry. He didn't really believe in writing philosophy as poetry. That wasn't really it's a sort of an Epicurean faux pas, which Lucretius seems to be perfectly aware of because he brings up the simile of the honey room cup so many times. This simile of the honey room cup really is for him outlining the task of the poet. It's outlining the purpose of writing this particular didactic poetry that is introducing in a very easy to digest and easy to consume way things that are very difficult to understand and things that are very complicated. So as I mentioned just before with Cicero, Lucretius is also engaging in this synesthetic attribution of sweetness onto didactic poetry. So he's attributing the qualities and characteristics of one sensory experience onto a completely different one. In this case, Lucretius attributes sweetness, a gustatory sensation and experience, to poetry. Under the literal sweetness of the honey-rimmed cup lies the sort of meta-literary deception of his versus suaviloquentes, so his sweet-speaking verses. So the sweetness of the honey covers up the literal 
bitter taste of the medicine, which is in turn a suawi loquen, so a sweet-speaking poetic device, and it helps to cover up the difficult principles of Lucretius's version of Epicureanism. He's commenting on the task of the poet, the merit of poetry as a genre, uh, and as a means for communicating difficult philosophical truths. So Epicurus, like I said before, was clear in not agreeing with poetry as a practice. And so it would kind of stand to reason that Lucretius establishing himself in Epicurus's philosophical lineage, that he would be invested in identifying and justifying his position on the use of poetry and using it as a way to communicate his version of Epicureanism. Yeah, like thinking about it now, Epicurus's stance on poetry actually makes a lot of sense because he was like if we trace the origins of poetry back to epic poetry, they were all about the original Greek gods and uh, about how like the deities control everything that happens on earth. Whereas Epicurus sort of turns this on its head and says, no, the gods have no place in this world. You know, everything's just atoms. We don't need traditional religion to explain anything. So his aversion to poetry and its foundation in speaking about the gods, the traditional gods, makes a lot of sense. So for Lucretius to come back around in the 50s BCE, which is still a time where like the gods had a prominent role in Roman society, but this would be the Roman gods instead of the Greek gods now, it does ring true to me that he needs to justify his own work and his use of this genre to express similar ideas about like not needing the gods in the world. I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about Lucretius's reference to sort of tricking his audience into ingesting Epicurean philosophy through the use of verses would have turned any of his audience members away? Or like, would his audience even have been aware of this metaphor going on? How obvious is the metaphor of a honey-rimmed cup for Republican audience? I think that Lucretius had really nothing to hide. And I think that's kind of the point of his philosophy, he, that he had nothing to hide, and that he kind of really just put it all out there when he uses that same metaphor so many times. I don't think that I can really give you a good answer. I'm really not sure. So fine. So you found a, a little bit of a gold mine here with your analysis of Lucretius and vocabulary of sweetness and deception. Do you plan to continue on in this avenue for future study, or do you see yourself turning to other words and other words? Honestly, at this point, your guess is as good as mine. I'm kind of hoping to stay on the same track in terms of like looking at Latin philology with a special focus on Lucretius, but I'd hope to let my research sort of drag me along rather than try to force it in any particular direction. At the end of writing this paper, as happy as I was with the work that I did, I did feel like there were many loose ends and there were many, many things that I can expand upon. And I do have the opportunity next year to write a dissertation for my MPhil. So I'm hoping maybe to, to come back, to circle back to this one, because I think there's, it's such a, a rich area for research. And I think that there's so much work to be done. And I'd love to just, you know, have done even a little tiny part of it. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've certainly lighted up distinctions between the two words and found pretty evident patterns in the uses of these two words. I'm excited for your future research. Let me know if you come up with anything. As a closing here, I wanted to ask, what does classics mean to you? So I think for me, it's, it's really about like humanizing the distant past, dissecting language and like endlessly interpreting literature, sifting through all of this material culture. All of these things, I think, prove that people have always been and will always just be people. And 
that Lucretius and Cicero and Plato and Epicurus and all of these people that we've talked about were all equally complex and also equally simple as we are today. I find it's difficult to kind of attribute like actual human qualities and characteristic to these ancient figures because they can really start to feel like cartoon characters and not actual real people with like complex inner lives. But I think, you know, the study of classics for all of its problems, for better or for worse, can help us uncover kind of, I guess, the sensitive and vulnerable and expressive parts of these people. I don't think it's an easy task for sure, but I think it's definitely one worth doing. And at least now we know the ancients also enjoyed honey. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> like, if, if nothing else stands true about the continuity of human nature, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the honey rim cup. Everybody has a sweet tooth. From the dawn of time, we've all had a little bit of a sweet tooth. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with me, Sarah. Good luck with the rest of your dissertation and with your MPhil program. Thank you so much, Cindy. It was such a pleasure. <laughs> You've been listening to my conversation with Sarah Rahajason about the meaning and connotations imbued in the two Latin words for sweetness, suavis and delcus. The questions for this episode were created with the help of Sean Bede. Tune in next time for my conversation with Avery Workington, where we turn to archaeology and the kingdom of Nubia right underneath Egypt. Cover art for the podcast was created by Taya Kendall, music by Matthew Hawkins, the podcast is produced with the help of grants from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.